then nothing's happening in Ohio. You know, and, and what I know now is that there was nothing wrong with Ohio. I was just already restless, irritable, and discontented six years old. I was already looking for something else to make me happy. I was looking for an outside fix to an inside problem. And if I just lived somewhere else, you know, if my mom didn't laugh so loud, if I had brothers and sisters, you know, if I had, if my room was a different color, if I had that dress, you know, it, it just, if, if I had this, then I'd be okay. If I lived here, then I'd be okay. If you would do this, then I could be okay. And, uh, and that was going on long before I drank, you know. I just never, uh, my favorite, and Penny talked about it last night, my favorite comment in the book is the one that says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Because that was not possible for me before I got here. If I was alone, I was in unfriendly territory. There was an entire committee in my head. None of them liked me. You'd think I could have found one friendly voice, but no, you know. Nobody. And they would tell me things like, nobody likes you. <laughs> People just say laughing at you when you're not here. They're still talking about when you fell down playing kickball four years ago. You know, I mean, just, and this is first and second grade, I'm thinking like this. I mean, I wasn't drinking yet, you know, and I didn't really know how far off my thinking was. I, I The big book says, you know, our drinking's a symptom and that really, you know, that we're self-centered. And, and by the way, I was not one of those people who walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time and went, thank God I'm home. I want what you have. I mean. I, that was not my experience. I, I, I have passed through a few times mostly to stay out of jail. And, uh, you know, I wasn't happy to be here. I didn't want what you had. Um, I finally hit a point where I didn't want what I had, and that was enough to get me in the door. But I, you know, I, I just wasn't one of those people who walked through the doors and got it. My dad got sober when I was seven years old. I was at AA meetings at age seven in Hamilton, Ohio, the Friday night speaker meeting. I was the kid in the corner with the coloring book, you know, and I knew AA was full of old people who had drank coffee and ate donuts because I had seen it myself, you know. I mean, these, my dad was 33, for God's sake, you know. I mean, they were old, and, uh, and they used to smoke back then indoors, so, like, you couldn't see anything above the table. It just was haze. And so I knew about AA. He told me about AA. He told me about his alcoholism, you know, and the tragic losses and the broken dreams, and I just, you know, when I finally took a drink, I felt so bad for him that he had a hard time. I just, <laughs> you know, I was like, man, Dad, if you drank more like me, you could have hung in there longer, you know. Sorry about your luck, but I'm different. And uh, and so then I, you know, read the book, and it says the bottle's a symptom. I'm like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, you know. And, and then, but the longer I stayed around, the more I started to see and that's the deal. If you're brand new and you don't get it, stick around. Because if I had to understand it all the day I walked in the door, somebody else would be up here talking. You know, most of my insight has come through hindsight. Most of my, you'll hear us talking about the, the spiritual awakening of the aha variety. Like, you know, a whole lot of it is, oh, that's what that was. And so I, you know, a lot of you have heard this story. A lot of you know my daughter, but um, my kids were four and six when I got sober. Sarah was four and Robbie was six. And Sarah just had a gleam in her eye. I mean, you know, she she raised lions to an art form that I had never seen. 
And Chuck and I used to tell people, you might be saving for college, we are saving for treatment. I imagine some of you are saving for treatment. So when Sarah was 11 years old, she wanted to be on a swim team. A lot of her friends were swimming, and so we took her to try out for the team, and the coach said, well, you know, you don't have much experience in the water, but I think you'll be all right, so you can be on the team, but I would like you to practice down in age group. Now, in swimming, they group them in years of two, 9, 10, 11, 12. So this man at 11 years old, he wants her to practice with the 9-year-olds, you know? Now, yeah, I know, right? And so that was okay with her. That wouldn't have been okay with me. And I was seven years sober when it happened, and it was barely okay with me being the mom of this 11-year-old who's swimming with a 9-year-old. So how am I going to look, you know? Like, your kid is swimming with a 9-year-old? <laughs> so anyway, she practices with the 9-year-old, and she's fine with that. And her first swim meet was only two weeks after she joined the team, and these are big meets where they just run heats and post the results. And she was 70th out of 72 in her first race, and she went back the next day. I would have been trying to get my parents to relocate, you know. <laughs> I would never have shown my face again. And we told her, well, Sarah, you know, you didn't win. <laughs> but, but you got this baseline time, okay? So in your next race, even if you don't win that race, if you beat your time, it's a successful race. Right, you know, fine. I mean, my parents told me that. I didn't buy into it. I, you know, I just, that's just what you tell your kids for their self-esteem stuff. And, but, you know, she beat her time and she was happy. Okay? The rest of that story is, two years later, she was a state double-A swimmer. Yeah. She was swimming all over the Midwest. Okay? And at 11 years old, I had never had a drink. And at 11 years old, she had never had a drink. And we reacted completely differently to that situation. If they had asked me to practice with the nine-year-olds that first day, I would have turned around and left. I could not have gotten in the pool because how would it work? And I began to see that my thinking was off long before I ever took a drink, that I could not be one of many. I couldn't be. You know, I used to, when I was passing through, I would hear him talk about being self-centered. And I thought self-centered meant vain and selfish. And, well, I'm neither of those. Problem solved. You know, um, just ask me. I'll tell you. <laughs> tell them. Like the old joke, you know, I was going to talk about humility this morning, but there's not enough people here. So, um. uh, yeah, and they called it the spiritual speaker. <laughs> I figured out why that is. Sunday morning, they always call the spiritual speaker, and you got to know that for somebody like me, there is just nothing more spiritual than getting the last word, so there you have it. Anyway, so self-centered, thought it meant selfish, thought it meant vain. I didn't know that self-centered meant I am always keenly aware of what you're thinking of me, and I didn't know self-centered meant if I can't win, I don't want to play. And I didn't know self-centered man, you will never, ever, ever see me try something new in public because you might see me fail and that is unacceptable. I didn't know self-centered man, if I try it three times and I can't do it, I'm done, you know? I mean, Sarah, with her swimming, somehow had internalized that thing they try to teach us about set a goal, work for the goal, achieve the goal. 
they try to teach me that, I'm sure, you know, but my outlook on life has really, like, give me the gold, you know, I mean, life, I used to say I was a 50-yard dash girl in a five-mile world, you know, but really, even that 50 is kind of a lot of work, and if I could just get you to bring me the prize at the start line, I'd just get a lawn chair, you know, I, I don't want to work if I don't have to, for God's sake, so... You know, so anyway, I start finding out if I can't win, I don't want to play. All of this stuff, I never knew what to say after my name stuck. You know, conversation escaped me. So if I met you and I said, hi, my name's Beth, and you say, hi, my name's Delilah, and then I know it's my turn to talk. You know, she's looking at me, waiting for me to talk. And now everyone in my head has launched discussing what I should be saying to her. Say this. What if she doesn't like sports? It was a good game yesterday. She may not like sports. What else is there? I don't know. What are you going to say? It's like, <laughs> they're up there arguing. I am paralyzed looking at her. We have to go. <laughs> As you can imagine, it was a relief for everyone when I took a drink. So. <laughs> Because I didn't know that's what dominated me. Uh-oh, did we lose a mic? Hello? Uh-oh. Nope, I didn't do it. All right, well, I know Karen's mic's running. I got a big mouth, so you guys will just have to listen harder. Um, so, oh, dear God. <laughs> Bringing in the seed, bringing in the seed, we will come rejoicing. <laughs> it just stopped. I hate that. No. That's hardly I'm an alcoholic. And sponsorship. I've been sober since June 26, 1988. Did I mention I'm easily distracted? <laughs> okay. So, if you're new by now, you have figured out that God has a sense of humor. Okay. So, self-centered check. You know, self-obsessed check. I mean, when the the big book says that. When we do our inventory, we found that the world and its people dominated us. And that didn't make much sense to me because I was a biker. I had my own Harley. I ran with very tall people that wore a lot of black leather. You know, I never, for whatever reason, never was in a violent relationship. Um, and I didn't fight. Now, I did. There was no high moral ground that kept me from fighting. It was an acute fear of getting my ass beat in public that kept me from fighting. <laughs> I knew if I hit you, you would hit me back. It would hurt, and I'd probably go down. And uh, so I didn't fight. So I'm reading the book, and it says the world and its people dominated us. And I'm thinking, I just didn't get it. That wasn't my experience. But what I know now is what dominated me was all that stuff I just talked about. What dominated me was what you thought of me. Not even what you thought of me. Okay, well, here, let me. All right. We talk a lot about self-esteem and therapy. Um, and the book says self-esteem. But what I have found is that my self-esteem doesn't have a thing to do with what I think of me. My self-esteem has very little to do with what you think of me. 
My self-esteem has everything to do with what I think you think of me, okay? Now, if you're new and you got that, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because that is how we think. I am always, it's like my life was a spectator sport and I had a camera watching all of you watch me. And if I'm talking to you, i got to be sure I'm animated so we look like we're having a good time. Don't you wish you were my friend? And, you know, I, my, I just, but I, inside I knew nobody liked me because everybody told me nobody liked me. And so if you, my mom always said, best day off, everybody's day off is best day off. Because if you asked me to go somewhere, it did not matter what commitment I had, I would go with you. And I did that out of an acute fear that if I didn't go with you, you would get to wherever you were going and look around and go, you know, I'm really having a better time since Beth isn't here. <laughs> Someone else might go, well, I thought she was your friend. And somebody else would go, well, I don't like her. I thought she was your friend. And you would all find out that I'd been hanging out because you all mistakenly thought the other one liked me and I would never get invited anywhere again, you know. And I just can't. And like I said, this is second grade I'm thinking like this. This is not later in life. So anyway, I, so I can't stand to be alone. I'm always, we had a big family next door because I was an only child, and I would just always morph into their family. And I, I heard Tracy say once I was dancing as fast as I could, and I understood that, you know, because I was, I was on every committee. By junior high, I'm doing yearbook stuff, honor society, pep club, you know, on into high school, cheerleading, dance team, student council. I mean, I was just busy, 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 busy. And at the end of my freshman year, I finally took a drink. And uh, I don't remember it changing my life right that second. Uh, some of my friends were experimenting with alcohol, and they were falling down and throwing up and looking bad. And I'm not going to do that. So I just kind of drank, drank enough to put on a nice glow. And I took my best friend out the next night to have her drink with me so I'd have somebody to drink with. And our friendship didn't make it another year after that because I drank different from the start. You know, and the only thing that kept me from being a daily drinker from day one was lack of access because I was 15 years old. And, uh, you know, I drank every chance I could. I immediately, they, I've seen a kind of question thing in Al-Anon about your kid, you know, is your child, do you wonder if your kid's drinking, are they doing this, this, this? And I passed, you know, but for whatever reason, nobody was paying much attention to me at the time. And, uh, and I mean, my everything, my grades plunged, my friends changed, my appearance changed, my attitude changed. It, it was just on. And all of those activities began to go away one at a time. Some of them I gave away. You can have it. Who cares? Some of them got taken away. They don't like their cheerleaders skipping school to go drink. Narrow-minded, I thought. And, uh, you know, other things just fell away unnoticed. There are whole pieces of my life that I've gotten back in sobriety that I didn't even know were missing. You know, I, like I said, I grew up in a college town. I was going to college sports when I was six years old. And by the end of my drinking, I was sitting in a bar talking about going to the game. You know, sitting, I mean, my idea of drinking on a nice day was sitting in a bar that kept the doors open. <laughs> you know, I used to drink down the road here at Club 74, so they opened all the doors so you could kind of, like get some fresh air while you were sitting pool and smoking and drinking. It's like, isn't it great? It's a beautiful day. And, uh, you know, because my life just got smaller and smaller and smaller, and I co-signed every step down. I, uh, a lot of you guys know I moved to North Carolina about 10 years ago. And one of the things I've learned down there, I haven't done it, but I, I know how, and I'm going to share with you because you just never know when you need to know stuff, okay? I, I learned how to 
uh, boil a frog down. Yeah. All right. Bear with me. There's a point. Really. <laughs> okay. If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump out. If you put a, a frog in a pot of cold water and turn up the heat a little bit, he will adjust. And if you turn up the heat a little more, he will adjust. And if you turn it up a little more, he will adjust. And you turn it up a little more, and he adjusts. And now, next thing you know, he's in a pot of boiling water dead, and he doesn't know what hit him. Okay? Now, isn't that alcoholism? Isn't that what we do here? We come in, and it gets a little worse, and we adjust. And we go down a little more, and we adjust. And it gets a little worse, and we adjust. And about the time we think, oh, I'm not going to do this, I better do something, we rally. You know, and then it's like, oh, my God, I almost went to AA. Talk about overcorrecting. You know, woo, woo. And then down we go again. And, you know, even if you had showed me the pot of boiling water, what am I going to say? Sorry, that's your pot of boiling water. I'm different, you know. Ah, that won't happen to me because that's just the nature of the illness. So I'm drinking. I'm drinking every chance I get. I love to drink. I, I occasionally forget to mention that. I love to drink. I just, I, you know, morning drinking, I am for it. I mean, if you could have a drink in the morning, why wouldn't you, you know? I, orange juice and vodka is healthy. Get your vitamin C, you know? <laughs> it made sense skipping school to drink. You know, you have to sober up before your parents get home. I just never, and I just, I could drink a lot. I drank with the big boys because I could, you know. I could keep up with the boys. Why would I want to drink with the girls? And so, you know, and I'm a child of the 70s, and there's all kinds of stuff floating around, outside issues. And, uh, you know, my my favorite was yours. And uh, <laughs> if you had it, I would do it. I rarely said, what will this do, you know. I did have a two-pill rule that if you had to take more than two, they probably weren't worth taking. But that didn't keep me from taking more than two. That was just my rule. And, <laughs> and you know, my experience, and, and, and we all have different experiences, but my experience was when I got here, I didn't wonder what AI belonged to. Um, because as, as time wore on and as my alcoholism wore on, drugs interfered with my drinking. So the drugs had to go. You know, because anything between me and a drink has to go. And I just, you know, this, this kind of family of drugs just meant I blacked out at 6 o'clock instead of midnight. So, you know, I'm done with those. And if, I smoke, if I'd had even two beers and smoked a joint, I couldn't move. So the joint wore off, and you can't drink if you can't move. So I'm done with pot, you know. That other stuff was just too much, you know, trouble. And <laughs> Very unpredictable. <laughs> I still, every now and then, something will float by, and I'm just kind of like, did you see that, you know? <laughs> if you really want to give a newcomer comfort, if a gnat flies by and they freeze, just go. It's okay, we all saw it. They're like, oh. Woo! <laughs> I do miss the diet pills a little because it just—it's the only time in my life that I was thin. I could drink for days, and my house was clean. <laughs> but 
that even those had to go because after two days I hated me. And if I hated me, I knew, you know, everybody else already hated me. So, uh, so I did a lot of drugs, but like I said, I just, you know, it, I was clearly an alcoholic when I got here. I did not struggle with what area do I belong in. Um, I counseled people who weren't sure, who had different experience. Try both A's and see where you fit. Because if you don't identify, you're not going to stay. We have got to identify here to stay. And, uh, you know, some people get bad advice out there about just substitute and, and whatever. Because I'm, you know, if I'm different than you, what worked for me, what worked for you will not work for me eventually. Because my ego wants me apart from you so it can kill me. So, you know, I need to be one of many to stay here. And uh, when I find myself getting judgmental, I just got to remember if I start judging, I am just judging my way out the door, you know. If I am judging, whether I'm judging that I am better than you or worse than you, I am becoming separate from you. And that's a death sentence for me because, more, you know, it's just safer in the middle of the pack, you know. Uh, cheetahs pick off the gazelles that are lagging behind. You know, the ones in the middle are safe. So anyway, now I'm drinking and having big fun, and uh, my life is getting smaller, but I don't care because this is, I'm just, you know, I just felt better when I drank. I could, I could have conversations. I knew what to do. I graduated high school barely. I went off to college. My big mystery has been as bad as I wanted out of Midwest, why I went to college in Indiana, but we'll never know. And uh, it was probably the path of least resistance. That's kind of my life story. And I, you know, I flunked out of college because I just couldn't go to class because I had no access to alcohol. I was in the middle of a, geographically in the middle of a 21 state. So I had, I mean, at least we had three, two beer here. It was disgusting, but it was beer, you know. And uh, and I just couldn't, I went with high prep scores, you know, so top, you know, top, top 5% of the country, ACT and SAT scores because I am a test taker. Uh, you know, I can still take a test to this day. If you're a test taker, you know who you are. You know, we just, you can ace treatment if you're a test taker, let me tell you. And uh, so I came back to Ohio because I know I disgraced my parents flunking out of school because, of course, everyone's watching, right? So I got a job in a bank because that was kind of respectable. And banks work Monday morning, so that was a short career. And uh, I had a friend who had a friend in Florida. And he said, we should go to Florida. And I said, we should, you know. I mean, I had wanted to run away from home since I was 12. And so I went, waited till my parents went to work, and I snuck in the house, and I packed everything. And, and now this is the honest-to-God's truth. All the way through the state of Kentucky, I am watching a rearview mirror expecting the sheriff to pull us over and make me go home because I'm a runaway, right? So I get down there. I get a job in the convenience store because I'd worked in the Kingfish up here. And uh, I didn't know it was really, like, transient where we went, so if you went to work three days in a row, you were management material. And <laughs> so two weeks later, I call mom, hey, I'm in Florida, but don't worry, I am assistant manager at this store, right? And she said something which I thought was kind of an odd question. She asked me why I didn't just tell her I was moving, which, you know, when you run away from home would kind of defeat the point, I thought. And uh, so I mentioned, you know, that I'd run away from home, and it would have been kind of defeating the point. And and I got, you know that silence you get on the other end of the line when you say something that makes perfect sense to you, but you know it didn't sink in that way over there, and maybe you didn't explain it right. And, uh, and you know, I just, this little voice on the other end of the phone just says, honey, you were 19, you could have just left. And I was like, what? 
I was dumb. I just was like, so, you know, 19-year-old runaway, right? I just, I had no idea I could just live. And um, so now I'm in Florida, and my alcoholism takes off because there are no checks and balances on my drinking anymore. Um, the whole town was three miles long, and everybody there bought beer on this end of town to drink on the way to the bar on this end of town three miles away. These are my people, you know? And, uh, and by the end of eight months, I was out of places to work. I was out of place people to date. Um, I did most of my dating at last call, and there was only three bars in that town. Yeah, like you didn't, right? <laughs> my first marriage was just a one-night stand that dragged on and on and on and on. I used to say there never should have been a second date, and then I realized there wasn't. <laughs> So I was operating. I had two rules that I lived by. One was that it's not all right not to know. Do not ever ask a question or they'll know that you don't know. And the other one was never, ever, ever, ever admit that you had made a mistake, which is how I ended up in a five-year marriage that started with a one-night stand because I wasn't going to cry uncle, and I guess neither was he. And it got, you know, I finally, he finally threw me out five years later, thank God, because it had to be his fault. You know, I can't leave or it's my fault. And I'm all about not taking responsibility for anything. It must be your fault. And uh, so anyway, I meet this guy. Because I got down to Florida. I had a friend up here, Dave Smear, used to say they should put a, a sign on a state line of Florida, California, and Arizona that says, this state doesn't work either. And if you saw a car pull up and read the sign and just turn around and leave, that's, that's the alcohol. Like, you know, because it's going to be different here. I just know it, you know. As my husband says, everywhere I went, there I was. And uh, so I'm in Florida. I'm running out. It's looking like I'm going to have to move home to Ohio because I can't support myself, you know. And this guy moves to town from California. He missed a sign to it. And he had everything I was looking for. He had a house, a car, and a job. You know, just love at first sight. And uh, and, he, and he was 6'2", and he had tattoos, and he had a Harley. I mean, that was just extra, right? So we started this five-year dance of death. And, and it just, you know, I mean, if I had to assign one word to that entire relationship, it would just be stupid. I mean, it just was stupid. It wasn't violent. It just was stupid. It was it was, uh, although it was very subtle, you know, I have come to uh, come to realize in hindsight that there was emotional abuse in that marriage, which is a lot sneakier, you know. I mean, I mean, violence is very visible. But what happened is, and those of you who know me know me, I'm a bit on the opinionated side and uh, not much of a wallflower. But what would happen was he, you know, someone else would do something stupid, and he would say, wow, that looks like something you would do. You know, and so it was very, very subtle. And I would just stop to where I didn't say anything because it was easier than fighting all the time. It was just easier to stay quiet and not make waves. And I would eventually just completely lose who I was. And I would come home and visit my mom for a couple weeks, and I'd remember who I was. And I'd go home, and we would fight for two more months, you know, because he would be saying, you never tell me what you think. And he'd be always telling me what he thought. You know, you never tell me what you think. And I'd be sitting looking at him thinking, because I think this. You know, but, I mean, you can't say that, right? And I just, so I just, you know, I just need you to know that that is abuse, kids. You know, that that's emotional abuse, and it's very insidious because we come out not having a voice, and we come out not knowing who we are. 
and that is a bad taste to be associated with like that. So anyway, I'm down there. We have, we moved to the key. We have a son. We moved to the keys. We have a daughter down there. You know, life in the keys is exciting. I had a great job down there at Ocean Park Resort. But it was the same thing. I mean, we had a six-month-old baby. We went to Key West for Fourth of July. We come home on Tuesday, move on Friday, have a baby and four hundred bucks. Hey, mom, moved to the keys. But don't worry, I am assistant manager. <laughs> you know. And she asked me something that she asked me a lot, which was how can you do something that's stupid and land on your feet? It just made her crazy. She had this twisted idea there should be consequences for your actions. I never was I never was much for that. So anyway, life is good in the keys, great job, oceanfront resorts, bars, restaurants. I had a ride, you know, but my alcoholism is gonna catch up with me. And uh, I clocked in one night at eleven when I was still there from happy hour at five and I got fired and it you know I intuitively knew I wasn't really going to find a job like that anywhere else because I had become the night auditor there. They doubled my pay, and I had the keys to every bar on that property. And they paid me. <laughs> Best job ever. And, uh, and so I would ring out each bar and have a drink with them and have a drink with them and have a drink with them. And so now I'm fired, and I kind of intuitively knew I wasn't going to find another job quite like that anywhere else, even in the Keys. So I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1983. I went to the Key Largo group of Alcoholics Anonymous on Tuesday night. They were very nice. I'd been to some meetings with my dad when I would come home to visit. He would always invite me when I came home to go to a meeting. I, you know, I just—I guess he just wanted me to meet his friends. You know, I, I, you know, he was hoping I would catch alcoholism while I was there. And uh, so I met the Tuesday night Key Largo group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all I had ever said at an AA meeting was, my name's Beth, I'm with him, you know, when I go to my dad. So I am not, if you got a sober parent, you know this. I have heard speakers say they sat in the bar and just went, oh, I'm alcoholic, who cares? If you got a sober parent, that is not an option. I knew intuitively that if I put alcoholism and my name in the same sentence, that a big book would drop out of the sky. The bartender would hand me a meeting schedule, and the AA police would come take me away. So I never wondered if I was alcoholic. I never uttered the A word in the same breath with my name. But I went to this AA meeting, and I said I was an alcoholic for the first time ever. And I, you know, let them know I got fired, and I knew I had a problem with alcohol. And, and, uh, and, they, and they were very nice. You know, it was a little discussion group where they had the chairs in a circle, and there's nowhere to hide. And they're all relating to each other. And after the meeting, they invited me to Perkins. <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, the little mini inventory, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm 24 years old. I have a Harley Davidson car, Jenny Street. 9.30 at night, and I've been invited to Perkins. Can it get any more exciting than this? And I just thought, I, I passed on Perkins, and I went home. I went and talked to the, the general manager of the hotel, and I told him I knew I had a problem, but I was going, AA, and and, you know, I was like that, that cartoon guy that walks down the sidewalk and his face in the peanuts just kind of cracks behind him. You know, I would get clipped every now and then, but for the most part, I just wandered through unscathed. And so I went to the boss and told him I knew, you know, I had a problem, blah, blah, AA. And crack, uh, there goes another P&L, got my job back, you know, because they had put the weekend girl up to full-time, and she didn't want to work full-time, and everybody hated her. So one meeting, I get my job back. AA works, it really does. You know? <laughs> I went to 
attended a Friday night meeting at Key Largo Group, Alcoholics Anonymous, told them I got my job back, and that was the end of my AA career in the Keys. And uh, I did call my dad and tell him that I'd been to a meeting, and within a week I got a box in the mail, and it had a big book, 712, each day, new beginning, 24 hours a day, one day at a time, a cassette tape of his talk, a couple of bookmarks, you know. I don't know how long he'd been throwing it all in there, but one meeting is in the mail, boy. Life went on in the Keys. We got in a little bit of legal trouble down there because, you know, it's expensive living down there, so we started a small home-based business. And uh, <laughs> part-time job, I thought, Monroe County disagreed with that assessment. And, uh, but even that, somebody screwed something up, and I, you know, I came out of it with a couple years of probation because they thought it was all his fault, and so did I, so we agreed on that. And, uh, and so now I'm like, finally, finally, he throws me out which is what I've been waiting for. He only had to say, get out once. You know, I was not begging for another chance. I did say, well, you know, we leave. We're not going home to cool off. This will be for good because you threw us out. And he said, I know, get out. And inside I'm like, yes, yes. So he left for work. I called Mom, said he threw me out. Can you send me a plane ticket? And uh, he came home at lunch with Todd. And I'm like, oh, too late. Got a plane ticket. And, uh, I wanted to relocate in Florida, but she was not sending me any money for that. And uh, so I ended up back in Ohio in 1984. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll fly away, you know. But I really just thought if I didn't drink and fight, this life would calm down. My mom lived out here in Madera, which for those of you who don't know Cincinnati, the entire neighborhood stepped out of the pages of an L.L. Bean catalog. (laughs) You might have gleaned by now I was not the most suburban of girls. And... uh, I thought, all right, fine, I'll drink in her neighborhood. That'll be different. And, of course, it wasn't. So I, and i got to tell you, too, the Alcoholics Anonymous here in 1984, young people, was on fire. Icky Pa had been here in 1983. And the Monday night young people's meeting was 200 strong. And Friday Night Live was 150 people. And it was enthusiastic, active, structured, sponsored Alcoholics Anonymous. Julie was there. I'm sure, you know, because she's sober longer than God, so she was probably, <laughs> she's probably there, and, uh, you know, but I, I couldn't do it, because when I walk into a room full of people, it splits into two groups, all of you and me, and you're all talking to each other, and you all know each other, and I, of course, don't know what to say after my name's Beth, so, you know, we gotta go. And I just went to the bar because I know what to do at the bar. If I got five bucks, I'm good. I know who can drink as much as me, who can pull as well as me, and who knows where the party is after. So I went and drank. And within a year, my children were removed from my turnout site on the front porch and fried. The neighbors called the police. The police came. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where I was. My car's parked right out front, and there's a bar down there. Gosh, I wonder where she is. So they called the bar and asked if I would like to come home. And, uh... What do you say to that? No. Um, <laughs> I went home. They said, is there anybody we can call? I said, no, sorry. Thank you. I guess I thought they'd just go, oh, okay, bye. And they said, well, then we'll have to call two full one kids. So I went, oh, wait, my mother lives here. And, uh, and my mom got that middle-of-the-night call that nobody wants to get. Come get your grandchildren. Your daughters are under arrest. You know? And in one phone call, her life got turned upside down because all of a sudden she is a primary custodian of a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And, you know, I didn't give a thought to what that did to her life. 
you know. Every problem I ever had, I laid at her feet. If I'd had long, you know, because I had short hair until eighth grade because my mom liked short hair. Now, I grew up in the era of Marsha Brady, okay? Short hair with a calic is the kiss of death in the social scene when you grew up, when I grew up. I'm not sure. I might have made it if I'd had long, straight hair, but we'll never know. And, uh, you know, that was her fault. No brothers and sisters was her fault. Laughing too loud was her fault. I mean, everything I pinned on her from the beginning. And uh, so now she's got my kids, and I'm not grateful. You know, I'm mad. And uh, and I made. they told me, I was working at Sodom Dungeon and Charters, so they said, well, if you go, you know, to treatment, you might not go to jail, and that seemed like a good plan. So I went to treatment, and uh, I ended up in an all-woman treatment center. That was not my plan. But, you know, I'm a test taker, and I already had a big book, and I've underlined a few things if you want to see what I think is important, you know. And, and I was the one that they would come get to talk to women who didn't want to leave their children for six weeks. And I could tell them all the right stuff, you know, better six weeks now than forever later, because if we're not careful, we can't be parents at all, which is true, you know. But the big book talks about a double life, the one we know is true and the one we want people to see. And I had a problem developing in treatment, and my problem was that I was realizing that I didn't really want my kids back, you know. I was kind of relieved that they were gone because it's hard work being a single parent, and I was miserable at it, you know. My alcoholism was already totally taking control of my life. And at my mother's house, my children got breakfast every morning. They got to go to in clean clothes. They got dinner at dinner time. They slept in clean sheets. They got a bath every night, and she read them a story every night. I couldn't do any of that, and I hated her for doing it. And I can tell you in one example the kind of daughter I am with untreated alcoholism, because alcoholism strips us empty, okay? My mom would, I'd have the kids on a weekend every now and then, and on Sunday afternoon about 4 o'clock I would say something to them about getting an apartment soon so we could live together, knowing it would never happen but knowing they would go home excited and tell Grandma, and she would have to be the bad guy and stop them there. That's the kind of daughter I am with untreated alcoholism. You know, how do you make amends for that? That's what I do to my family while I'm saying, butt out, leave me alone, it's none of your business. I'm not hurting anybody but me. Butt out. And I was tortured all the way around. But I don't know and I don't care because I am all about and uh, I didn't stay sober while I was in treatment. I got word that my father had died. And, uh, you know, I was going to go be sober with him, so that was kind of a bummer. And I was the only child of divorced parents, so I got the insurance money, and I got to do it the way I wanted to do it. It was gray as it tends to get around here. And, and, you know, at 28 years old, I'd wake up. I was sleeping on a couch under the window, and I'd wake up, and it would be gray out. It would be 5.30, and I didn't know if it's a.m. or p.m. And I couldn't bear the thought of, like, getting up and walking up to the bar and finding out that it's a.m. because I didn't have enough money to drink all day, and I would think I'd go back to sleep. And I wake up, it would be light or dark, and I would toss and turn for what seemed like hours, and I would wake up, and it would be 5.40, and it would be gray. And I would look out the window at people going to work and just think, how do they do that, you know? I mean, the whole time I'm stopping at the squares waiting their normal lives, I didn't have a clue how to do it. You know, I didn't know how to do it. And I hit kind of an emotional wall and just one night said, God, I just can't do this anymore. You've got to help me. Because I never, I never tried suicide because I knew I would live. I knew I would live. And uh, 
and I, I remember the big book my dad had sent me. I'd been up in this attic since August. It was now December. I hadn't unpacked. I had a pack for the couch and the TV and the bed. But I remember my dad had sent me a big book, and I pulled it out, and I read Bill's story, because that's what I always read. I always start on page one. I mean, nobody really reads those Roman numerals, do they? And uh, so, you know, I get to treatment, and they'd say, the design for living is in this book. Our instructions are in here. And I'd open up the page one bill story, and it would say, war fever ran high in a New England town. I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is helpful, you know. <laughs> but I read Bill's story that night, and I identified for the first time. I knew how he felt. I felt like he felt, and I knew what he was talking about. And I slept with that book like it was a teddy bear. And I'd love to tell you I've been sober ever since. I mean, I woke up the next morning, and I just felt different. It had been lifted, you know. And I believe that God had removed the obsession to drink. So here's the deal. That had happened in my life more than once. You know, God will remove the obsession when you ask. But I never did a thing to keep it gone. I didn't go to another meeting. I didn't call anybody. I didn't read anything else. I didn't pray again. Whether it was that day, the next day, or a week later, I can't tell you. But the committee convened, decided we were going to drink anyway. We may as well get it over with. And I took a drink. Because I can surrender, but I was missing that part about staying surrendered. You know, there's a talk by Harry Tebow that was reprinted in the back of AA Comes of Age. And one of the things he says in it is that surrender is not an event, it's a discipline. You know, that we can surrender, but we got to stay surrendered. And he says, never, ever underestimate the power of the ego to regenerate itself. So if I carry that thought to the big book, the big book says we're undisciplined people. <laughs> Duh. And... Uh, and then it says, so we let God discipline us by the plan outlined in this book. So that tells me that living in the book is how I stay surrendered. So anyway, weird things started happening early in 88. I didn't drink a whole lot. I was living with a guy that had a bad back. So, you know, I'd help myself to his pain pills a couple times a week just in case. And uh, he, took, he went out of town and took his pills. I got drunk. I was surprised. And, um, and by the end of a couple of weeks of drinking, Nobody was talking to me in Ohio, and I had this sudden thought, like, oh, my God, I've been gone four years. I bet everybody in Florida is going, why would Beverly come back? And, uh, and I ran away from home again at age 29. I, uh, I had mom's credit card for emergencies, and it was an emergency that day. So I went to Florida, and, of course, nobody was very glad to see me. And, you know, by the end of the week, the credit card was tired as I am. On June 26, 1988, I was in the Fort Myers Airport, and the credit card wouldn't take a plane ticket home. And I only, I didn't even have a dollar. I didn't have enough for one drink. And if I'd have had enough for one, if I can get one drink, I can get two. But I didn't want to be asked to leave the airport bar because it would have been obvious that I was sitting in there waiting for somebody to buy me a drink. And I couldn't bear the thought of being asked to leave. And I thought about trying to grab a purse from a little, little senior citizen, you know, and Maybe I get lucky and she'd have some cash, but, you know, I was really hungover. And I knew that I would pick on the little old lady that still did aerobics twice a week. <laughs> she'd run me down and take her purse back, and I'd be in the newspapers, you know, purse, purse snatchers tackled by octogenarian, you know. So, so I did what we do. I called Mommy and uh, told her where I was and what I had done and asked if I could come home. And she said, I don't know, call me later, and hung up. And, uh, so I called back a couple hours later, and she had called her Al-Anon friend. Um, thank God. Thank God she did. And 
And she said, I'd book you a plane ticket, but I want you to understand I'm not really flying you home. I'm flying the children's mother home because we're afraid we'll never see you again if we don't. And I got on the plane. I hadn't had a drink all day. I didn't have enough money for a drink on the plane. I had no idea that was going to be my sobriety day, but I would have cried harder, I'm sure. You know? And I got into town at about midnight, and she picked me up and drove me straight to the cat house, which for those of you who are not local is the county detox. No plushy, no, no cushy treatment center. And, uh, and she said, go in or don't, but you can't come home with me. I've done everything for you that I can do, and you have to do it yourself. And again, I didn't think about what it cost her. When she left that night, she didn't really know if she'd ever see me again, you know, because it was in a bad section of town, and I could have wandered off into the darkness and been gone forever. But I went in, and the next morning I'm laying in detox trying to get my plan together, because we do like to have a plan. And, uh, you know, I couldn't come up with one. Everything I tried had already failed. You could borrow money? No, you can't. You know, you could work it? No. You could call? Uh-uh. You know, and I just, there was, my sponsor calls it no friendly direction. I just had, I had no options. I couldn't come up with one better idea on how to run my life. And I was 29 and a half years old. I'm 53 now, so you don't, you don't have to do the math. And uh, I was 29 and a half, and I realized that I never thought I'd live to be 30. I just figured I'd be dead. So why plan, right? You know, if you're going to be dead, that would be a waste of time. And I realized I was 29 and a half, and I was distressingly healthy. I mean, there just was nothing wrong with me except alcoholism. And uh, and I just wasn't, you know, it's like this voice came out of nowhere and said, People like you don't die, Dad. Oh, no, you know. And, and, I, and I knew it was true. I knew no matter how bad it was right then, it was going to get a lot worse if I stayed out there. And I knew I wasn't going to die. I knew I was going to live 30, 40, 50 more years whether I drank or not. I got that moment of grace where we, you know, I got a friend in Greensboro that says grace is that moment when we see things exactly as they are. And I knew right then that I was going to live whether I drank or not and that it was going to be a long, slow, you know, like suicide on the installment plan if I kept drinking. And I just had this passing thought that, well, you know, whatever those people in AA are doing seems to be working for them. And clearly what you're doing is not working for you. Maybe that will be the one. And I didn't know that was the surrender. You know, I didn't know that was the one. I was a biker for God's sake. I thought I'd go down in flames, you know. But no, no, when I surrender, it's this one little voice that goes, and uh, so I surrendered. I decided to go to AA. Now, I got out of detox on Friday, a 4th of July weekend. I had made arrangements to go into this hotel for women, a true sign of surrender. I couldn't get in there till Tuesday. My car was impounded. Couldn't get that till Tuesday. Had some charges pending. Wasn't sure what they were, except they probably had something to do with the car. None of that. My life is on hold until Tuesday because of the holiday, and it's Friday. I knew if I went where I lived, I would drink. I knew that. I scraped up enough money to get a cheap hotel room in Iguini. Great motel on Reading Road. Oh, yeah. They didn't have a bar. That was my criteria. They had a pool and no bar. And uh, and I just, you know, I, I just stayed in there. I, thank God it didn't rain or I would have been suicidal. And I just, like, went to the – well, the first night I got, I got out of detox on Friday, and, I, you know, I, I – I suddenly thought, well, I don't really need to go to a meeting tonight because I've been going all week in detox, right? I could take a night off. 
And this one voice in my head said, you know, you skipped meetings before any of this. Maybe you could just go. So I got on the bus and I rode down and, you know, walked the block to Oak Street. And uh, and the girl giving the lead that night, I had met passing through and she was sitting there four years sober. And, uh, and she told a room full of people that alcoholism had taken her to the place where she didn't want to work and she didn't want to take care of her daughter. She just wanted to drink. I never heard anybody say they didn't want to care for their child before. That was my biggest secret. That's the one I can't tell anybody because I used to try to quit drinking every now and then, you know. But a lot of guilt can creep in in 24 hours if you don't have a solution. And I maybe would have a good day, but my head would be almost to the pillow, and they would meet and go, you know, you don't even like your own kids. What is wrong with you? You can't tell people that. And here she's telling a whole room full of people. So I got her phone number. And the next day I called her, it took half an hour of like, she doesn't really want you to call. She doesn't like you. She doesn't know you, but she doesn't like you. She's going to say Beth who, you know. And finally I called and I just said, this is Beth. I got your number last night. I have no idea what to say to you. I'm practicing using the phone. And, uh, and she just laughed and said, that's what I had to do too. You know, and that's what I tell new people now. Don't worry about having conversation. You just tell me you are practicing using the phone. Because before, when I passed through, I'd get a sponsor mostly. So if you asked me, like, okay, she's over there. But, I, you know, I wouldn't call and wouldn't call and wouldn't call, and then I'd have a problem, and then I can't call because they'll think I only call when I have a problem, right? So, you know, so I just called her every day, and I didn't have much to say, but I just called. And I was going to maybe go in a halfway house, so I'd promise the halfway house lady that I'd go to a meeting every day. And I would write it down when I got home. You know, I wrote it down on a piece of paper because I knew if I wrote it before I went and didn't go that somehow that would be the end. I would just cheat, fill in the sheet, and never go again. So I had these little games I played with myself. But I started going to this meeting up at Oak Street called Mean Big Book. And they read a chapter every single day. They read the preface forwards, then they read the doctor's opinion in chapters 1 through 11 and started at 8. So every 13 days we're going through the first 164 pages of that book. And I heard the book in that meeting. Because I, now here's why I went. I went because my many trips through treatment, one thing I knew was you should read your big book every day. So this will count, right? They're reading it every day. My day's free at one, okay? Got the whole rest of my day to myself. And reading that whole chapter chewed up about half of the meeting, so chances were better I wouldn't get called on. This is why I went to me in big book. It had nothing to do with learning about the book. But God has a great sense of humor. And what happened was, my day was free at 1, but at about 4.30, I remember I had no life. And so I'd be back at 6 for the 8.30 meeting because I had nothing else to do. And when you guys were reading it, I started to hear it. You know, because if I was reading myself at home, even if I wanted to read at home, I just couldn't. My brain was sawdust. And if I pulled out the book at home to read, either 20 minutes later I was staring at the same paragraph. Or I was 40 pages in and had no idea what I read because I can think and read at the same time. <laughs> and even reading along with you guys was a struggle because you'd be reading and I'd be in my head reading along. Rarely have I seen a person fail. So surely followed. I wonder what it's going to cost to get my car out of impound later. I better call that guy after the meeting. I wonder, God, where did I put his number? Oh, no. You know, somebody turn a page and I'd be back. But it started sinking in a little bit, you know, because I, I was uh, I answered phones for my mom at her office because I was unemployable. So she she let me answer phones for her because I wouldn't have worked if she hadn't made me. And, uh, but I could go to work, go to a new meeting, and go back. And I was on my way back to her office two or three weeks sober, and I stopped in Walgreens to run an errand. 
and I popped in to see what everybody was talking about, you know, because they're all still up there today. I just don't visit with them very often. And, uh, and I popped in, and somebody in my head is going, that was so cool what Guy said at the meeting. And somebody else goes, I know, I didn't even know that was in the book, did you? And somebody else is like, I didn't know that was in the book either. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, the voices in my head are getting sober. You know what I mean? It's like, woo! <laughs> they are up there discussing the meeting without me. That is a good sign. And the biggest joke on me was the people who go to Big Book meetings on purpose tend to be the people who read the book and do what I say. And I have unwittingly plopped myself into the middle of the most active people in Cincinnati Alcoholics Anonymous. They were on committees. They started conventions. They were intergroup reps. They were busy and active and happy in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was a lot of laughter in that meeting. And I get, you know, I think when I passed through before, I'd go to some general discussion so I could talk about me. You know, anybody have a topic? You know, <laughs> pick me and, uh, and this time, you know, it's funny. I went to that big book meeting, and I always heard what I needed to hear. And never once did I tell anybody. You know, and I realized half the time I wasn't even working on the right problem. So if I had gone and been the topic, we none of us would have been talking about the right thing. So I just learned to shut up and listen. You know, I learned to let God tell me what I need to hear instead of me telling God what I needed to hear. And my life took off. By three weeks sober, somebody said, you've been around before. Why don't you write an inventory? And I thought, I don't know. I didn't know I could say I wasn't ready. And so I wrote a four-step, as outlined in the book, all four columns. If you don't know those four columns, ask your sponsor. There's four columns. And uh, and I wrote it, and the woman who didn't want to take care of her kid became, you know, she heard my first step, became my sponsor. And that was what three weeks sober in my life took off. I mean, it just took off. Thank God I had people who knew what was in that book. You know, I will ask groups of women sometimes at a treatment center, how do you know when it's time to work the steps? Because that's the question everybody wants to know. How do you know? How do you know when it's time? And they sit and stare at me, and I just tell them, you know, you are going to hate yourself. Because here it is, and you hear it at every meeting unless you're out getting coffee. (laughs) If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, you are ready to take certain steps. Don't say anything about a step a month. Don't say anything about a step a year. Because if you want what we have and you're willing to do it, you're ready. And I was ready. I did not want to live the way I was living anymore. And that doesn't mean I got well right away. Even in this big book meeting, you know, I still don't like to look bad. I'm still me, right? So in the big book meeting, they go around the room and read. So what am I going to do, of course, because I count things by nature anyway. I'm going to count so I know which paragraph is mine, right? Because <laughs> I will be sure I know all the words. And there's so many ways to read. I mean, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail. 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 Really, have we seen a person? Fa- I mean, you know, the possibilities are endless. So I got to be sure that I am prepared, and I get my paragraph, and I am ready. And then Penny reads two paragraphs and screws it all up. <laughs> and I got to start over because there's one in every room. It's hard being me. Um, but I, I started. I did two meetings a day a lot because I could. I felt better when I was at a meeting. So that that whole 
thing I live by is more is better really works for me in Alcoholics Anonymous because I felt better at a meeting. I probably did 12 or 14 meetings a week for a couple of years. You know, I started t- taking my kids on weekends. My first amend to my children was to stop making promises I couldn't keep. Okay? Because, that, you know, we do that toxic guilt gift stuff and the Disneyland promises. And, uh, and my daughter, I didn't know if I was going to the halfway house or not. My daughter wanted to go on a riverboat ride where dresses like a lady. And so we, I got tickets and we did the riverboat ride once a month. You know, my son wanted to go to a Reds game. I didn't know if I was going to be gone or not. So we went to a Reds game. To this day, I will never forget. It was a three-hit game. The score was one to nothing after the second inning, and that's where it stayed. By the seventh inning, I'm going, this is why people drink at baseball games, you know. <laughs> Robbie and I just ate one of everything. We hit, we hit every level, and he's having a blow. What should we eat next, Mommy? You know, we just... We had a great time. And when it was time to go to the halfway house, you know, a couple of people there told me, you're already doing what they will show you how to do. Leave the bug chaser for me and leave the information. This is the same thing they told me about treatment because the cat house had a 30-day program, which I wanted to go do. And they said no, which I was really offended, you know. So what they said was, Beth, you know, you've been through treatment before. You know everything we're going to tell you. You probably could teach most of what we're going to tell you. Why don't you leave the bug chase for somebody who doesn't have the information and you go do it? Well, how do you argue with that, you know? And that's probably the first thing I did for somebody else. So I got busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? I went to a lot, a lot of meetings around here. My kids came to meetings on the weekend with me. And, uh, I mean, my kids did four meetings a week from Friday to Sunday, not because I wanted to involve them in my recovery, but because I knew I'd just yell at them all weekend if we didn't have some diversion, you know? And I brought them with me, and you guys knew their names. And I got to tell you, my biggest fear when I got sober was that I would be unable to ever love my children because I wasn't sure if alcoholism had just killed off that ability. I mean, we just come in here dead on the inside. And I didn't know if that was something that could ever be relived. But I brought them here, and I learned how to talk to them watching you guys talk to them because you knew their names. And you sat down on a chair to talk to them eye to eye so they didn't have to look at everybody like this. And you had Sarah help you get coffee cups, and you played Transformers with Robbie, and you colored with them, and you knew they played soccer last week, and did you win, and how'd the game go? And my children, who were invisible around me, because what they heard from me was, I love you, go away. You know, because if you're between me and a drink, you're either mowed down or you're invisible. And my children had become invisible. And around you guys, they began to look the world in the eye, and their gaze came up off the floor. And they began to be okay, and I learned how to talk to them watching you guys talk to them, you know. And my kids got their lives back in Alcoholics Anonymous. They came to meetings. Sometimes at meetings, I would just, I felt like half of the room was going, do something about those children, and the other half of the room was going, leave them alone, they're just kids. So I'm just like, oh, you know. But I had to bring them, and I'll tell you what, if you ever need to bring your child and I'm at a meeting, I will take that child out so you can get a meeting. They did it for me, you know. I cannot stay home because I got kids. And, uh, you know, so it isn't always an open meeting. But I hope, I hope those of us who have been sober a while are alert enough to notice that there's a new girl in distress because her baby's crying and she doesn't know what to do and maybe one of us can take that baby out. You know, we have to. We have to. We do not shoot our wounded, and that includes glaring at somebody with a noisy kid, you know. So, enough of that lecture. Um, 
Anyway, I went to a lot of meetings. Kids come with me, you know. We start doing all the picnics and eating meetings. And when I was a year sober, we were going to one. And when I got there, I said, if you guys want to play, go ahead. And, you know, they never went and played, but that was fine. But that day, Robbie tugged on my leg about half an hour later. And he said, Mom, I just want you to know, you know, that if you need us, we're over here playing. And what I realized was it was the first time they they knew they could let me out of their sight. And I'd be there when they got back. You know, I got that moment of grace to see what was going on. And, uh, and we, you know, we kept showing up. By 15 months sober, I had a car, license, and insurance all at the same time. <laughs> all in my name, I might add. <laughs> and by Thanksgiving of the second year, I'm coming up on a year and a half sober, and my son is seven. And, I, you know, I got a little car, a little apartment, you know, my little kids. Worry about Robbie a little because you know it's an awful lot of women in his life. I, you know, his sister and my mom and me and I mean, a little guy, seven years old, he needs the man in his life. So for his sake, right? I probably should start looking around. <laughs> that is the kind of loving, giving mom I am. <laughs> to noon big book because that's what I do and at one o'clock when it was time to eat I couldn't find Robbie and somebody said oh they're across the street and there used to be a schoolyard across the street and there is my son and four of the guys from Lake Street and another little kid and they're all playing football and I thought wow where else could a little boy be on Thanksgiving day except playing football but the grace of that moment was realizing I didn't do a thing to make that happen except go to noon big book and I realized that if I just did what I needed to do, his needs would be met too. I did not have to micromanage his life. And I called off the man hunt um, for a while. <laughs> now, I had met a guy almost a year before. I guess I was about, no, I guess I was about a year and a half sober. And uh, so it must have been shortly after that. Yeah. So about a month later, this guy comes and speaks, and uh, he was from, from uh, one of the outlying groups. Oak Street has this thing called All Get Zelda Tonight where different groups would come in. And, and I was kind of one of those, you know, I was at Oak Street. You know, I had been a bar drinker, so I was right in the middle of it at the clubhouse. So, you know, I had this thing kind of about suburban discussions and, and you know, preformed, preformed opinions on what those all look like. And, you know, everyone out there was boring, right? So it, it, was, a, it was a suburban night, and I thought, oh, great. And, uh, but I was already there, so I stayed. And this guy gets up and talks, and he just gave the best talk. I mean, I just, I never forgot his name. He gave this great talk, and I told him, you know, at that moment, I just said, I want what he has, and I am willing to go any lengths to get it. <laughs> We've been married 20 years. <laughs> but I have to tell you that we, uh, we didn't start dating right then. We actually would cross paths a little, but we ran in real different circles, but we would just periodically cross paths. And about a year after the first time I heard him talk, then we started hanging out a little. We didn't even really say the dating word because we didn't want to jinx anything. And he had dated like I did at last call, so we thought we'd do something novel and keep our clothes on and get to know each other. And we're working with our sponsors on this dating thing because neither one of us has a clue what to do. And I mean, he's getting things like, okay, Chuck, you ask her out ahead of time, you know, you go to the door, you pick her up, you walk her down to the car, open the car door, Chuck, be sure she's in the car before you close the car door. We needed a lot of help. 
And then we would, you know, do AA dating, coffee before the meeting or coffee after the meeting, and you're just never quite sure when it's over if you should be kissing goodnight or saying the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so we dated, we fell in like, we fell in love, and a, a year and a half after we started to date, we got married, and that was July 1992, so, you know, some of you guys were at the wedding, and... Uh, and, you know, we are still having a great time. He is my best friend. We, you know, we do AA together. And, uh, you know, I'm sober longer than him, which is a plus. <laughs> Six months. He got sober in 1988, too. So I only get to help him until December, and then he catches up. But uh, six months a year I get to help him. And uh, so, you know, we're just having a great time. And my mom and I had talked when I was a year sober and decided it was really no good purpose for us for the kids to come back and live with me right then. Um, by the time I was a year sober, they had been with her for four years in a blue-ribbon school district in a clean, safe neighborhood. I was in a 10th-floor efficiency in a crappy section of town. You know, the greater good was not served by dragging them down to my level, and so we determined that I would catch up to them. You know, I was a disruption in their life. They were doing what they were supposed to do. And so I went back to school, and I kept working, and, and Chuck and I got married, and, and we moved out to a neighborhood right next to them, you know, because they lived in Madera, and that was, that was out of our price range. But we, we got to Deer Park. We're getting closer, you know. And uh, I'll tell this story because Penny here hasn't told it for a while, but we bought them bicycles for Christmas, and, uh, you know, up here you might get to ride it in March when it warms up a little, so... We bought bikes, and we thought, well, we should get bikes, too, you know, because they're little, and we should ride with them. So the first warm day comes, and we get out our bicycles, mom, dad, big brother, little sister, we're going to go ride our bikes, and we're riding through, you know, the suburbs, Deer Park, the suburban to me, after where I've been. And we're riding down the street, and some guy is out mowing his grass, because they do that a lot in the suburbs, you know, they mow the grass, and Anyways, you know, because they do that out there, too, and you wave your neighbor. Now, we've been in Mount Auburn, where if there's one hand up, there's two and a gun, you know? <laughs> we had a cat in the apartment in Mount Auburn, right? And we lived right on the alley. We lived in Park Tower, so we're right on the alley, and there's just breaking glass all the time, and you hear gunshots and ambulances and everything. We moved out to Deer Park, and all you heard was crickets, and that cat was just like, what's that, what's that? <laughs> I thought he was going to have a nervous breakdown, man. <laughs> like an ambulance went by one night, and you could just see him go, oh, thank God. <laughs> so now we're out, we're riding our bikes, the neighbor waves, I wave. And about the time I waved, my old little green Kimber came back, and I got a look at where I was, and I just thought, oh, my God. I used to own my own Harley. And I'm riding through the suburbs on a lavender puppy. How did this happen? You know, if you had told me, Beth, guess where you're going to be four or five years sober? <laughs> I would have been like, oh, yeah, right, you know. But the really amazing thing about that moment is right then, right there, there's nowhere I wanted to be but on that bike with those kids. And that is light years away from not knowing if I'd ever be able to love them again, you know. Because I'll tell you what, God can get close to you, you know. We take the act and he changes our hearts. And, uh, and we, you know, I show up, I do the steps, and it becomes easier, and it becomes better. And, uh, you know, I just, my job is show up. My job is turn life with other kids. My job is work through steps. You know, we say meeting makers make it, but that's not the whole truth. 
you know, put the plug in the jug as a recipe for suicide, homicide, you know. Meeting makers make it if they work the steps while they're here. You know, there is a program. Don't drink and go to meetings is a recipe for the psych ward for me. And, uh, you know, don't drink. I mean, it is helpful if you don't drink between meetings. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, get a sponsor, work the steps, read the book. All that stuff they told me to do all those times when I passed through is true. It's true. That's what works, you know. I was doing it then. I'm doing it now. I have never not been in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous since June 1988. You know, I got in the middle. I stayed in the middle. I like it in the middle. My strength comes from being one of you. You know, I used to always feel like I had to be Beth the cheerleader, Beth the night auditor, Beth Jim and Kelly's daughter. Because somehow just being Beth wasn't enough. I never felt like I occupied my space. You know, I had to do a bunch of big stuff just to justify my space. And what I found out I was looking for the whole time was Beth Proud of God, you know, one of many. And uh, and this is where it's happening, you know. And if, you, if you're new and you think this is all just way lame, it's okay. So did I, you know. And the thing is, it is lame right up till it's not, you know. But God changes hearts here. And you got to stick around and watch for that miracle. And you may see it in somebody else before you see it in yourself. And then you'll do what I did and go, aha. That happened to me, I wonder now. I am so glad you're all here. Thank you.